The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good morning, Long Island, and welcome to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Romas, and I'm so glad that you can join us this morning as we share and explore all relevant issues related to autism spectrum disorder. My guest this morning is Frank Pomada. Frank is a mental health advocate with 25 plus years of experience working in the nonprofit human services sector. Frank currently works as an employment counselor with the Suffolk County Department of Labor. After a long journey coming to terms with his own mental illness, Frank embarked on a mission to utilize his writing and public abilities to be public speaking abilities to become a mental wellness and suicide prevention speaker, trainer, author, and advocate. Welcome, Frank. Hey, it's good to be back, Michael. Well, it's good to have you back. That's that's been a what a journey you've had, huh? Indeed, I definitely have had quite a long journey. You know, uh, I think that's not uncommon either. No, it's not uncommon. In fact, if you're comfortable, uh, because for a lot of our listeners, this will be the first time uh, meeting you. Would you mind just talking a little bit about what brings you to your current role and the passion that you bring to, to the field? Sure, absolutely. And thank you again for uh, highlighting this topic, which I think is so important. And that's why I've sh- I've decided to talk about and write about my own life and my experience. Some of the things I might talk about are rather unflattering, but if it helps one person, then I'm committed to doing it. So in terms of background and whatnot, I'm a person who has bipolar. Uh, my grandmother had it. My father had it. And ultimately, I began to see signs of that in my, uh, I would say, my teens. And uh, a lot of things kept me from dealing with it. The main things, I think, were fear, denial, stigma. I think those are big things. And especially if you overlay that in our culture with that whole strong, silent male thing. I mean, let's face it. I was born in the 1960s. So I'm a guy who was, uh, you know, steeped in things like uh, Clint Eastwood and a lot of the, you know, a lot of those kinds of figures and whatnot, the stoic lone individual and whatnot. And so those are the models of masculinity. So you take that combined with mental illness and it's a, it's a recipe for not necessarily wanting to be all that open about your feelings. So, um, there we go. Well, suicide survivor. I think that's important to put that out as well. Absolutely, Frank. In fact, I certainly want to want to. And I first, let me just add that I really appreciate, I think our listeners do too, uh, your candor and your willingness to share uh, with, with our audience and really with all the people whom you touch. Uh, because it's a personal experience, but yet it really does help to allay uh, a lot of the fears and the self-consciousness that people have around the stigma when it comes to mental health. And just lastly, I wanted to say I'm especially grateful because the field of, of autism, and you know, DDI is deeply rooted in, in, in providing those supports, is beginning to wrap its collective head around the fact that so many of the people we support have co-occurring mental health challenges. So this couldn't be 
more relevant. So I'd like to know how uh, how did that bipolar component manifest for you? How did it show itself? How did you recognize that that might be an issue? Well, you know, I had watched my grandmother who had it much more seriously than I, uh, my father and the ups and the downs and whatnot. And I began having things like, uh, you know, inexplicably that weren't connected to external events. Uh, you know, let's say I was having a really great day one day and all of a sudden it was almost as if uh, I used the analogy of a black curtain uh, mm. descending uh, changes in my sleep pattern. Uh, some of which I actually took advantage of both at work and college and whatnot, where, you know, I'd have these down periods where I, I just, you know, could just sort of breathe in, breathe out. And that itself could be a challenge or stay in bed for a day, you know, kind of needing to take that, uh, what we call these days a mental health day. Um, you know, I often had to make up a BS physical excuse up until fairly recently. Now I've, for the first time, not all that long ago, I called my boss and he's a really great guy. And I was able to say to him, Hey, I need a mental health day. And that that's progress. Um, so what the, the sleeping and stuff, I took advantage of the day, the times when I was high uh, in the manic phase, they would say, you know, cause it was called manic depression rather than bipolar when I was a younger person. And so what I would do is use those times when I could subsist on three or four hours of sleep and, kind of almost do the work of five people and I would sort of counterbalance the downs that way. But, um, you know, it was a recipe for disaster and, uh, eventually that caught up with me, you know, mm -hmm. thankfully I would say this, I never tried to self-medicate either with alcohol or recreational drugs. You know, I didn't, I grew up in a family where we just, you know, weren't drinkers, you know, we didn't look down on anybody who did drink and whatnot, but, I just never had an interest in uh, putting substances in my body or self-medicating. In fact, I was quite fearful of medication, which was one of the things, too, that stopped me from investigating treatment. I was afraid of being told, oh, we have to take medication. Yeah, just as you say, a lot of people who have those kinds of challenges do reach out for self-medication, and they pay yet an additional uh, price and complicate uh, an already challenging uh, uh, circumstance. Frank, what prompted you to get help? Um, what prompted you to get help? And were there any barriers uh, that you faced in getting help? Okay, great questions, Mike. Um, what prompted me, or really I should say forced me, was my third suicide attempt where my wife found me and saved my life and that was in 2012 so we're going on a little over 10 years ago and uh i remember waking up in the hospital and my wife and mother were there and uh you know they said gee you know we we got to take this seriously and you, know, you had two other attempts and you kind of talked it off and you know everything's going to be okay i'm fine now it was a momentary lapse but uh, you know, it was like enough is enough. And, um, they, they deny it where <laughs> they did moms and all with us, unfortunately. But, uh, I, I believed while I was in that bed that they were going to sign me into the psych ward involuntarily, uh, at the local hospital here where I live in Patchogue. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll sign myself in and I had a 10 day stay and I have to say that was a very fearful thing. I, uh, I cried myself to sleep the first night. I 
was very uh, afraid and fearful. They medicated me, and I remember waking up feeling like I had a, a gauze or cotton around my head that my thinking was dulled. And I was like, ah, oh, this is exactly what I was talking about. This is what I want to take medication. But, you know, we ended up having to experiment with different forms of med, and that, too, was another resistance. I had to taking medication. You know, it's one thing, like, my dad had diabetes. Insulin, boom, take a shot, instantaneous. It's not that exact the science when it comes to medicine. In fact, it's not until fairly recently we had medical, pharmaceutical uh, remedies to try to help people with mental illnesses. And even today, I do uh, maintain taking my medication, but, you know, there's that little bit of resistance when I open those bottles of this, still this feeling. And again, I go back to that whole male model of, oh, it must be weak. I got to take these things to kind of my brain pills, you know. That's so interesting. And I, you know, and I do hear that a lot in my work and in my practice that it's almost as though there's a, a resistance. I think as you're describing, maybe part of, uh, in some ways that, that male macho kind of dynamic, but also in, in women too, that my, my body should be able to do everything it's supposed to do without anything to augment it. And almost like, would you agree, Frank, that it's almost like an ego thing? Like why, why should I need anything to mm -hmm. carry me through my day? I would put it on a micro level and a macro level, Mike. I think you hit the nail on the head. And yes, I've talked a lot about males being a male myself. But uh, yes, this affects all ranges of genders. We include non-binary folks in that too, if there are any amongst your listeners. Um, there's that individual, how you want approaches, challenges, lives, what your individual framework is. But then... Look at the culture that we are steeped in and the, the workaholism and the, the icon uh, that's held up this, uh, you know, paragon, if you will, of, you know, um, pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps. You know, I work with unemployed people uh, and often some of those folks are on public assistance and gosh, you think it's the worst sin and it's almost like they're invisible in our society. And, as a person with mental illness, I, uh, I was so fearful of being that label, you know, and I worked for an organization uh, and I love they had this poster up that I, uh, that I just loved called Disable the Label. I love it. I love it. And I, what an interesting parallel that you kind of raise. I really never heard. Uh, I never, it never really occurred to me that the kind of stigma, the kind of self-deprecating feel, feel, feeling people might have about a mental health challenge in some ways, in some ways is not entirely not analogous, pardon, pardon the double negative, to people who are on public assistance, people who are in need of something and kind of mm -hmm. resist getting the support that they that they do need. Frank, let's hold that thought. We're about to go to a break. When we come back, I'd love to speak a little bit more about how you move from that into an overall sense of well-being and what kind of tips and strategies and guidelines you might want to bring to the table here. Sounds great. Uh, thank you, Frank.
Welcome back, Long Island. You're listening to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Romas. Again, so glad that you can join us as we continue our conversation with Frank Pomata. Welcome back there, Frank. Hey, how are you doing, Michael? Um, actually doing well and really, as I said earlier, so grateful for this this conversation, which I think is really going to help destigmatize a lot of the the bias that seems to surround uh, mental health challenges uh, even even today. But on a positive note, right where we left off, we were talking a little bit about the journey to uh, to well-being, which is just as real as the other side of the coin. And that, you know, we, we talked about where you were a little more than 10 years ago, and thank goodness where you where you are today. What came together, Frank, to allow for that? Well, um, it didn't happen immediately. You know, I spent about 10 days in the inpatient uh, psychiatric unit at my local hospital. And when I came home, you know, as I say, not immediately, but my wife shared with me what it was like to find me and how it affected her. And, and asked me to promise, you know, that I would not do that. And not just for her, but to make myself a promise uh, in that regard. So that was the first step. The second step was doing the work. Um, and you hear that a lot uh, in 12-step programs. Well, it applies here as well. Uh, I'm able to give these talks and do writing on this topic because as part of my therapy, I have been educating myself for the last 10 plus years. I have been reading voluminously. I've got a therapist that I finally found who I cannot sing her praises enough. But getting to that point was not easy. Um, we've got some structural barriers in our society that really uh, impede folks getting help. Uh, some of those, you know, I include the fact that I had to make 26 calls, 26. I sat at the dining room table, I still remember it, uh, to different mental health providers before I found someone who was taking patients and took my particular insurance plan. That is a problem, mm-hmm. you know, and especially when sometimes somebody's in crisis and needs help right then and there. And I have often reflected in conversations and just to myself is, what if I ran out of gas at call number 25? You know, we maybe wouldn't be here having this conversation. So that was part of it, finding a therapist, doing the work. Uh, As someone who kind of led a double life, if you will, the scariest thing, I had done some research in terms of before looking for a therapist and figured out that I wanted to explore what's called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy uh, as the mode because I felt like that would be the most helpful to me if I looked at that, did some research beforehand, some homework, if you will, and uh, it has been. But the scariest thing was uh, the first words out of Hillary's mouth uh, at that first session were, I'd like you to journal. <laughs> and I was like, what? I was like, you want me to put my deepest, darkest things, the things I've been, I spent my whole life hiding, and now you want me to write them down on paper and talk, and where somebody might see that or something like that? And she said, yeah. She said, in fact, your first uh, entry could be, uh, Hillary wants me to uh, journal, and I don't want to. And that was exactly what I wrote down. Uh, I've come a long way uh, with that, and I found it instructive. And um, I grudgingly admitted to her about a year later, I said, you know, this journaling thing has been helpful, even though it was quite difficult. 
uh, initially. Also, too, because I was so busy much more life in denial that it took me a while to actually have an awareness of what was I feeling at a given time. I was so used to play, pasting a smile on my face, like that commercial where the woman has, it was a drug commercial, I believe, for an antidepressant. The woman has a paper plate with a smile on it, and she's going around to different social settings. I was more concerned about not stinking up the joint with my feeling down that I would paste the face on. And many of my long-term friends and family members who became aware later on were stunned when they learned because they just, they were like, I had no idea. And of course they did. I, I was a master actor. So it sounds like, Frank, that you you are flagging uh Reflecting the very real problem that part of the impediment, or one major impediment to getting help, is that masking, that that obligation to kind of put a public face that is just not what's going on at all. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of us do that in, in many a- aspects of our life, but when you're doing that to mask uh, a serious health issue, uh, it can come. A lot of energy. That is a lot of energy. Yeah. And as I said, too, even calling in sick on those days when I really just wasn't feeling up to uh, the challenges of work or whatever was going on on a given day, I, I, I would like I'd have to go through my head. Like, okay, let me see. Is it, is it flu? Is it a migraine? You know, going through this little thing. What did I call out for last time? And how thankful I was that I expressed it to my current supervisor uh, and how compassionate he was. And then I felt he had created a rapport with me. And I felt safe enough to just call up and say, hey, uh, I need to take a mental health day. And he actually checked in with me later on. And I just, you know, that's so important. Mental health, COVID has uh, brought mental health in the workplace to the fore. And I think that that's so important. That's an area where I've done some uh, talks to corporate audiences. And I'm seeing human resource folks and uh, corporate leaders talk about this more and I think that's so important because that might be a venue you know where somebody might feel safe talking about something if the conditions are right um, so let's, let's you know. spend a minute on that Frank I'll spend yeah. a little more sure. what kind of do you have thoughts about what kind of practices or policies uh, could be implemented to help support people who are facing these kind of challenges and also maybe what might fill the gap around the enormous inadequacy of, res- or inadequacy of resources that really was brought to the front forefront, as you say, especially during the, uh, the pandemic when really people were in desperate need of help and it just wasn't there for a lot of people. So, yeah, a little thinking, uh, if you will, about the pr- procedures or practices, policies that may have occurred to you. Sure, sure. Yes, um, I think First and foremost is creating a safe environment for people to talk about what's going on in their lives. That is for leaders, supervisors to say, hey, uh, you know, I've got an open door, you know, if you ever need to talk about anything, be it work or non-work. In fact, a friend of mine who is a manager attended a workshop I did for the Patch on Chamber of Commerce, and he attended not with his friend hat on, but he actually asked if he could attend as a manager. And he told me afterwards, he said, you know, I had some people over the years who just kind of quit inexplicably. And he goes, and I wonder, you know, if maybe something had been going on, but they didn't feel safe talking. So first and foremost, 
talking perhaps about one's own struggles without you know necessarily oversharing. Uh, your health policy, taking a look at well, how do we promote wellness in this workplace? Mm-hmm. And a lot of places have physical things, you know, gym membership discounts and that. But does your corporate insurance policy taking a look at you know what are the health benefits and is there a parity between the physical health benefits and the uh, behavioral slash you know psychological uh, benefits so that people who are in need get help. Uh, externally to that and you said it you know we really it was highlighted during COVID is we've got a shortage of providers and more than that if we really dig deeper and do what they would call it a deep dive uh, we've discovered too is that in terms of diversity we need to create a pipeline where there are more uh, a broader range of people who are in that field so that maybe I could get to speak to somebody who either looks like me or has a shared uh, religious heritage or various things, or maybe they're uh, non-binary like me, because uh, sometimes things can get lost in translation when there isn't that shared uh, background. And so, you know, we really, that steps us back in a number of ways, uh, you know. Uh, and again, I'm seeing groups like uh, SHRIM, the Society for Human Resource Managers, and other organizations beginning to have dialogues and discussions and and create best practices, you know, toolkits, if you will, for someone who wants to do that. So there you go. You know, it's funny as as we talk as we talk, Frank, you know, your not only your passion, but your understanding for this subject is just jumping off the page. And I, I don't really think there's any substitute for you know for personal experience. You know, when you itemize some of the kind of changes or uh, um, emphasis that would help make the field uh, of, of mental health a, a better place. There were a few things that really resonated with me, I, I, and maybe with our, our listeners, uh, the idea of creating a safe a safe place. It's just what we want in therapy, isn't it? Uh, the, the alliance, the, the being receptive to people. And I loved what you said about some personal disclosure because some people just keep everything under under a blanket and and finally your call for real parity in services so that people really can come to the t- table not with just some grand request but an expectation uh, of receiving the kind of supports i can't believe that we're running out of time it went way too <laughs> way too fast i am going to ask you back i know your journey continues uh, the, as as they do for all of us and i i would love to do a follow-up with you thank you i would love to as well i'm i'm honored that you uh are highlighting this topic and appreciate the time you're giving to it mike well i appreciate the time you've taken to be here thank you so much frank Pomada. we'll bring you back okay. Thanks, folks The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.